Support for this show is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Decoder listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Just go to vanta.com slash decoder to claim your discount. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We've got a special episode of Decoder today. It's an interview between Verge Deputy Editor Alex Heath and Meta's Tom Allison, who runs the Facebook app. Alex is here. Hey, Alex. Hey. Alex is the co-host of the newest season of Vox Media's podcast, Land of the Giants. This season is all about Facebook and Meta. The season finale comes out tomorrow. He's been reporting and working on Land of the Giants for a long time now. Along the way, he interviewed Tom about Facebook and the newsfeed. Alex, Facebook has a lot of challenges, but it seems like the biggest problem of all is TikTok, which is capturing more and more of young people's attention in particular. And then Facebook's problem is that it spent years building out a social graph about friends and family that is less interesting than just being shown videos that TikTok thinks you might like. Yeah, that's right. And this was Allison's first big interview since taking over as the head of Facebook at Meta. And we covered a lot of ground. I mean, so much ground, actually, that my co-host from Recode, Shereen Ghaffari, and I realized it would be valuable for people to hear the whole chat. You'll hear Shereen a lot in this interview. Allison has been at Facebook for more than a decade, and he previously ran engineering for the news feeds. So he knows more than almost anyone, really, about the history of feeds and where they're going. We talked a lot about this latest shift he's leading to make both the Facebook and Instagram feeds more like TikTok. And that means more content from accounts you don't follow. It's basically the opposite of the last push Facebook made to change the feed, which was about making it more about people you do know. So it was interesting to hear Allison's rationale this time. I should note that this is not your typical decoder interview. Land of the Giants is very scripted. So we let our guests talk a lot and just use snippets for our episodes. This one appeared in our fifth episode about the future of Facebook and the feed. Shireen and I recorded this in late July, so this was right after Facebook announced some big changes to the feed, which we talk about. Speaking of that, I should note that Allison starts talking about MSI, uh, but he doesn't define it until a few minutes later, so we'll just do it at the top. MSI stands for Meaningful Social Interactions, which was the previous version of the feed that you're talking about. It prioritized what Facebook hoped would be meaningful social interactions between your friends and family. But as you talk about in Land of the Giants and in this interview with Allison, it had some pretty bad side effects too. Yeah, and you know, you talk a lot, Neelai, in this show about the trade-offs that leaders have to make in their organizations. And I would say this conversation is a really good history lesson about those trade-offs from the perspective of one of the key executives who has been leading multiple eras of the newsfeed really since the beginning. I thought it was a pretty interesting um, window into how they look at things and really 
showed me that every time they do something like this, it's kind of in reaction to, I would say, unintended consequences that they made from a previous iteration of the feed. And we don't really know what the next version of the feed uh, will look like in terms of those consequences. So we kind of left it hanging around that uh, idea. But I think it's pretty interesting to see the kind of trade-offs that they are making uh, inside the company and how that maybe doesn't quite square up with what people expect is happening. Yeah, it's one of the most complicated problems in tech, in society. It might be unsolvable. Uh, It's a good one. All right, Alex Heath, Shireen Ghaffari, Tom Allison from Meta. Here we go. Tom, thanks for doing this. I'm here with Shireen Ghaffari talking to you on the day you announced the new Facebook feed. Can you talk about the announcement and the evolution of what used to be called the news feed? So, you know, what we announced is a feeds tab. So the feeds tab is going to allow you to see all of your content from friends that you're connected with, groups you're connected with, pages, your favorites, and it's going to allow you to see it in chronological order. So it's almost like a throwback, you know, to kind of old school Facebook, which I think is very cool. And we know that a lot of people come to Facebook and they, in their minds, they're like, I want to go see what's up with my friends, and this is going to make it even easier to do it. Now, what we've also done is we've renamed the kind of tab that you open the app to, to home. And this is really kind of signaling that this is going to be a home for a lot of the different content that you see on Facebook. So it's still going to include content from your friends that you're connected to. It's still going to include content from pages and creators, but it's also going to include content that we think is really interesting to you, might be interesting for you to share or discuss with your groups or with your friends. And increasingly, that content is powered by AI, which is just getting very good at identifying of all the great content across Facebook, what's some of the things that are going to be really interesting to you? So we're kind of setting the stage for this kind of next, you know, evolution of Facebook. But a lot of it is really kind of coming from our belief system that ultimately Facebook is a a tool to allow you to express yourself and to allow you to connect with other people. And so this is really just an extension of that belief system but within the context of technological innovation that's happening, where it's easier than ever for people to express themselves. We have higher bandwidth phones and connections to be able to like express ourselves through multimedia and video. And we have more sophisticated AI now that can look at kind of the billions of pieces of content that are being created across Facebook and, and Meta more broadly and deliver the piece that might be right for you in that moment. So I think it's an exciting kind of time for Facebook, but I do see it as kind of an evolution of what we've always been trying to do, which is when we see kind of a new technical wave of innovation, we always look at how do we build that around people? And that's still going to be really core to what we do. Was TikTok the consumer product that showed you guys this model working at scale? Was there anything else that kind of led you to realize, like, why do it now? I guess, why go this way now? So I'll give you a little bit of the backstory there. So you might have read or heard, it was a little over a year ago, and even Mark said this, I think, on on one of the earnings call, hey, we're going to start really looking at the needs of young adults and prioritizing the needs of young adults. And I actually, before I led the Facebook app, was really kind of immersing myself in all of the young adult research and working with the team on, wow, like, 
what we were really seeing was there was a kind of a big generational trend happening in how people want to use social media. And just as background, the way we define young adults is kind of anybody in the age range of 18 to 29 years old. Now, Facebook itself is around 18 years old. So we're talking about a generation that grew up with social media and they grew up using it and learning how to integrate it, frankly, into their lives in different ways than I did. You know, I'm not a young adult, you know, spoiler alert. Um, so I kind of came from kind of a different set of, of usage there. And so as we were like really deeply immersing ourselves and how is the next generation using social media, wanting to use social media, we saw, wow, there's lots of changes in how people want to share. How do they want to connect with their friends? We saw changes in like this kind of incoming generation is much more, they're curious. They're kind of finding and discovering their way in life and actually recommendations and things that are kind of appealing to their interests that help them kind of shape, you know, where they want to go and who they want to be and what they want to discuss with their friends are a much bigger part of kind of their social media experiences than I think were frankly part of mine in the era earlier. So a lot of this, in fact, most of it was really informed by our study of the fact that we're entering kind of, frankly, almost like decade three of Facebook and social media, and it's changing. There's a big kind of change happening. Now, you know, I talked to you about this last time, definitely seeing kind of what TikTok did was certainly illuminating, right? I think, you know, we saw this really powerful format, short form video, and we saw how people were using it to express themselves. And for me, very viscerally, too, there was this kind of recognition that, wow, this format where you have somebody speaking to you, directly to you, in this almost very personality-driven way, it does feel more like you're kind of connected to some of these creators because they're authentic, they're expressing their personality, you can learn from them, we can riff more on that. But it was, it was very exciting, and I think TikTok kind of did a nice job showing folks what that could be. But again, integrating formats into the Facebook experience, integrating tools for self-expression, integrating tools to help people share and discuss what they see from other people is really always been kind of core to Facebook's kind of identity and evolution as a service. So it made a lot of sense for us to kind of integrate short form video and, it, and to actually go bigger on recommendations. And the recommendations stuff we had been doing since kind of before TikTok, we've always had some recommendations in feed, but we had a whole watch tab, which is video recommendations. We had a groups tab, which had a lot of groups recommendations. I think really the big mental leap that we've finally made is like, hey, this distinction between connected content in feed and unconnected content, this might actually be kind of a more artificial construct that we've created. And actually what the next generation is looking for is actually a blend of kind of who speaks to them and how, and this distinction of like, this is a creator that I'm connected to that really resonates with me versus this is one that's getting recommended to me, but I'm not connected to. I don't think it's as strong of a mental model as, as we believe it has been. And so again, just this value of being able to show you something that's gonna be really compelling to you, regardless of whether you're connected or not, uh, we really embraced it. And we went through a lot of discussions with Mark. You know, I mean, Mark is the creator of Facebook. It's been great really working with him over the last six to eight months on this. We had multi-hour sessions with him and kind of many people that have led or been involved in Facebook in the past of really kind of together 
shaping this, I would say, updated vision for how the Facebook app is going to respond to the next generation of people who are going to use it. There had to be a moment for some of like, are we killing our sacred cow or the thing we've hung our our companies and our identity on for 18 years in terms of the social graph and the feed and uh, just hearing that refrain over and over as we've been doing this series from the tape over the last 18 years. Was there a moment where people were like, no, like this is us. This is who we are. We can't just like subject this this deeply to a trend right now. Uh, There's a few things I'd like to share on that. One is that's always accompanied a big inflection point for Facebook, right? Think back, like, what was it, 14 years ago? It was like, oh, Facebook is just for Harvard students. (laughs) You know, it's like, no, actually, it's for other Ivy League colleges. No, actually, it's for every college. And then it was like, okay, Facebook is just for students. You can't possibly open it up to people who aren't students. No, actually, you can. Again, the tools are meant to connect people, but there's always been those kind of resistance points. I remember too, when I first joined Facebook in 2010, it was a little bit pre-mobile. And it was there was this thing of like, hey, we always show ads in the right-hand column of the website. We can't show ads in feed, you know what I mean? And then it's like, no, you can show ads in feed if you make them really good. <laughs> Similarly, you can show recommendations in feed if you make them really good. And so I, I think you've seen that Facebook has always really evolved on this kind of common arc of no, like what we're about is we're about giving people the power to share and express themselves. And we're about connecting kind of the most people that we can to that. That's really the kind of promise of of social media. So is it uncomfortable when we go through these things? Is there a lot of discussion internally? Like, are we losing our, our, our kind of legacy? Are we? And And yeah, there's a lot of that, but that's what makes it pretty exciting. And I'll just tell you my kind of take on this. And the thing that I kind of tell my team is, Facebook, at the end of the day, we are going to be deeply rooted in social connection. Like that's the value that we provide. And so we have this kind of, you know, mantra in the theme team now. We call it connection through content. There's this recognition that kind of content, whether it's from your friend network or whether it's from a connected group, can lead to connection because that's what you discuss. That's what you might share. That's what might start a message thread with another person. But what we're really doing is kind of saying, you know what, recommendations can do that too. And, you know, I found this great creator on Facebook. He has an account over the fire cooking guy named Derek. He barbecues (laughs) food. And like, I really like that. And I saw that and I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And like, I share that with my friend who likes barbecuing. And like, it started a conversation and it deepened this kind of shared interest that we have. And so a lot of what I've been kind of talking to the teams internally about is, again, this is a way that people ultimately want to connect with other people, whether it's with feeling this kind of connection with a creator that they might not physically know, but they like emotionally resonate with, or whether it's sharing a piece of content with a friend that you find via the discovery engine and using that to springboard into a conversation about an interest that you share and deepening that. So. Again, I I think that it's taking some time because we've built up this, well, feed is connected content mentality. But as people have really seen the ways that this can facilitate social relationships and strengthen them, people are like, oh, okay, I, I get it. And we're at the beginning of the journey too. There's a lot more kind of work and features that we need to implement into Facebook to make kind of this vision of the discovery engine that I'm talking about a full reality. But that's where we're going over the next year. 
I hear how that does connect to where you guys have gone. I think for a lot of people, the reason it feels abrupt or people have strong feelings about it is that TikTok is seen as entertainment to a lot of people. There's not, it's not a very social app. Uh, there's messaging, but I think most people passively sit there and just consume and maybe they share in a private message, but there's not a lot of on app messaging happen, or at least that we know of. Also, like you guys had spent so much time working up to this change, really prioritizing with the MSI era. Like we want people and with their close ties in feed, commenting, sharing, having these long comment threads in feed. We want feed to be the place where people communicate with their friends. And this feels like a radical I think at a high level departure from that. And maybe it's not, but can you kind of touch on both those themes that I think people think of this push you're doing as more passive and more entertainment and also that that departure from MSI? Yeah, I don't view it as a departure, but maybe let me talk a little bit about MSI because um, I was working in the Facebook app when we did that, a little bit about kind of how that came about and maybe how kind of what we're doing is an extension of that. But first off, MSI stands for Meaningful Social Interactions. It's essentially a, an approach towards ranking content and prioritizing what we show in newsfeed that prioritizes content that we think is going to bring you closer to the people that you care about, whether it's seeing friend posts or whether it's, you know, commenting on things or sharing things. We kind of developed that as a response to what we were previously doing in Facebook more on 2015 and 2016. I guess stepping back, you know, every kind of ranking system has what you would call an objective function. It's the thing that that system is trying to optimize for to provide the value that we think uh, corresponds with what people want from it. So prior to MSI in 2017, uh, we were really looking at time spent. A lot of companies were looking at time spent, you know, YouTube, other things. The idea being that if you choose to spend your time with Facebook, we're providing you with a lot of value. And this was, of course, as video was really starting to make its way more prominently onto mobile devices. People were looking at links, a lot of other things. But the downside of kind of optimizing or goaling on time spent was as the ranking was deciding what to show you, it started to say, well, hey, Tom's more likely to spend time on this video, more time on this video versus this post from his friend. So we'll prioritize that higher in feed. And really what we learned was, A, this is not fundamentally what people come to Facebook for. You know, we got a lot of like, hey, where's my friend content? Yeah, these videos are cool. I watch them, but I miss seeing content from my friends. I come to Facebook to kind of interact. And so what we really ended up doing was tilting more towards, no, we're going to prioritize the content that people say helps them create these kind of meaningful social interactions. And so things that lead to conversations, things that, you know, help you connect with your friends and um, things of that nature. So that was really what you saw as us kind of incorporating that. Well, and practically in feed that meant weighting things like comments between connected graphs, right? That's right. It was weighting things like, yeah, I mean, we looked at a whole bunch of factors from research about, you know, to the degree, you know, that we could understand this, like what was creating meaningful social interactions. And when we did that, and I remember, you know, Mark kind of said this, I think, during the announcement, um, we ended up kind of cutting back like several, I don't remember, it was a big number of like video <laughs> watch yeah. time as we prioritized more of the, the social interactions. But one of the things that we continue to do with MSI 
is it evolved over time. We were constantly trying to figure out, well, what social interactions are meaningful to people and how are they evolving? Because, it, you know, what we can do is kind of a proxy of what people really want, you know, in their relationships. And so now to tie this back to the discovery engine, again, there's kind of a shift when we look at the social interactions that young adults value. So they are much more likely to share via stories than they are to feed. They want to kind of share more everyday moments that are depressurized, that might not stick on their timeline, and are visual and expressive. And when you think about a meaningful social media kind of interaction for them, it's much more likely to be posting a story than for me, where I kind of, you know, grew up using the feed. That's what I still do. So you're seeing these kind of generational differences in what constitutes a meaningful social interaction. The other thing that we really saw was, wow, folks prefer often to have conversations with friends over Messenger. So the story is the conversation starter, but rather than commenting on a feed post, the interactions and the kind of meaning of that and the relationship building happens in a more private Messenger thread, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's a group. And that's why, I mean, you see on Facebook, you, you see a visual story and you can start a messaging thread on it. But what we really saw is when we put the lens on that next generation, we said, wow, the meaning that they get are those meaningful social interactions. The way they're doing that is changing. And so we really need to adapt our product to it. I think the other thing that we really saw with young adults was how much they value creator content that speaks to them, that speaks to their interest. And I think it's important to note that even though this is what you would call public content or video content, um, people find that connection with a creator like quite meaningful. And I think we all experience this to some degree. I was listening to a podcast with um, Lex Friedman and Susan Kane, and they were remarking how like they feel like they have a relationship with some of the podcasters and like musicians and without ever even really meeting them. So I think we were really starting to see how these kind of creator driven content that really speaks to people um, to that, you know, to them feels quite meaningful, even though that might not be like an explicit connection between two friends. So I would say that the way that we're trying to orient the, the Facebook kind of future of feed is still very much in the spirit of like, how do we show you things and surface things to you that are going to result in this kind of being able to share with your friends and connect with them, but recognize A, it's changing for people, and B, some of this kind of more public content because of the medium and because of the formats behind it is becoming much more relatable and personal than I think it was even a few years ago. I think the difference is like your inventory before this was almost entirely social graph inventory. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to start inserting a bunch of stuff that is not in a, and I think that's going to be the big, and people are seeing that now on Instagram because Instagram is ahead of you in terms of rolling out unconnected in feed. And just people have, as I'm sure you've seen very strong reactions to that. They get on their Instagram, they go, what in the world? This is not who I follow. <laughs> and I think you're going to start getting that on Facebook and I'm sure you're prepared for that. You used to run engineering for the newsfeed for a while back in the MSI era, right? Mm-hmm, I did. Can you explain how that worked? Before you were sorting based on who your friends were and the pages you follow, and now how do you decide what someone sees? How do you decide quality in an environment like this? Yeah, you know, when we rank your, you know, your connected feed, um, you know, we're looking at a lot of what we call signals. We're looking at a lot of different aspects of 
the content itself and your previous behavior to help us understand, is this something that you would like to see at the top of your feed or not? So we look at your interaction history with the friend. We look at how often have you commented on their post? How often have you sent them a message? How often have you liked things? How often have you shared them? And then we also look at kind of qualities of the content itself. Obviously, there's kind of integrity and community standards things that we look at. But it's, it's, it's just a host of kind of different things to help us understand, is this something that you would want to see right now, kind of at the, at, you know, towards the top of your feed? It's actually similar to recommendations in some way, right? Like, we kind of, you know, we can take a look at like, well, have you kind of interacted with this topic or this type of content before? Have your friends done that? You might not be connected to this creator, but have you liked their post before? Have you commented on their stuff? Have you participated in a group that might be similar to the post from a public group that we're recommending? So we look at a lot of characteristics of trying to understand, is this something that you would be interested in right now? We, we really try to understand um, the content behind this. And one of the things that I'm actually really excited about that our teams have been working on and you're going to see this more and more kind of throughout the product. But periodically, we ask people on a recommendation, hey, do you want to see more of this or do you want to see less of this? And like, that's our way of just asking you, hey, like, just help us, right? Tell us like kind of what you're into. And the reason that I'm kind of excited about that, especially going back to the MSI conversation, you know, we always kind of struggled with the fact that one of the things kind of meaningful social interactions that a lot of people have when they see something on Facebook is they might not like it, they might not comment on it, but they go and they talk to a friend about it, right? I'm regularly talking to my wife of like, oh, I saw this thing on Facebook today and we, we talk about it and Facebook doesn't know that like that loop happened, right? But, you know, now when Facebook shows me something and it says, hey, Tom, do you want to see more or see less of it? I can say, hey, I want to see more of it because Again, I'm not necessarily sharing this Facebook, but like, hey, this is the type of thing that helps me have a good, like an interesting conversation with my wife. So I think incorporating a lot of those, I don't know, almost like user preference type signals is a really exciting area for me and a lot of our teams. And I think it's going to help make sure that the recommendations we show you are relevant because you brought up this fact that like people are like, oh, do they like recommendations? Do they not? I actually think it's partially because we need to make the quality of them much better, right? This is why, you know, you've heard about some of the changes we've made to AI and like kind of, you know, in my team, we've we pulled together some of the best and brightest kind of AI engineers across the company to really focus on recommendations quality to figure out how to leverage both. Like, what do we know about the content? What do we know about the person? What are they telling us they want to see more or less of? Um, so I think these recommendations are going to get better and better and better to the point where they feel just as good, if not even better than some of your connected content in feed. That's our aspiration. Since you mentioned goaling and kind of f objective function, I think, is that what you called it? Yes. Uh -huh. What plainly was the goal for MSI? I know Mark said at the time, we expect time spent to decrease if MSI works. What was the goal for MSI? Did it work? And then what is your goal for Discovery Engine? What are you goaling the teams towards in terms of a metric, a North Star metric for Discovery Engine? Yeah, I mean, MSI, we ended up kind of creating this kind of, I would say, almost like a composite metric. But the heart of it was really looking at, are we increasing kind of the amount of social activity on the site? So 
friend posting, commenting, things of that nature. Now we still look at all of that. Like there's different teams that look at how many comments are people sharing with one another? How many kind of messages are people sending back and forth? And so, you know, there's a lot of different goals at different levels in the organization that kind of reflect or are meant to reflect the health of what I would call kind of the social ecosystem. What I look at in particular, I look at a kind of like four buckets of goals, I would say. That's the thing. I think the one thing I'd love to get across is there's there's no one goal. Like I kind of, you know, share this much. There's a lot of different goals and I'll, I'll just give you kind of the shape of that. First bucket of goal is just like, are people visiting Facebook? Are they choosing to visit Facebook on a monthly basis, on a daily basis? You know, if we have really bad recommendations, people are not going to visit Facebook as often. They'll go to another, uh, you know, competitor that's doing recommendations. So I just look at like, hey, are people choosing to visit? That's kind of one bucket. Another bucket we look at is, hey, we're a business. Are we actually kind of growing, you know, revenue? Are these things monetizing, you know, monetizing videos different than monetizing feeds? So there's a whole lot of work that we need to do to make sure that the business is running as we make these kind of format integrations and innovations. So that's another bucket. A third bucket that I look at is kind of, what I'll call like the quality and reliability of the experience. Does Facebook load quickly? I, you know, I used to be responsible for the performance and reliability of the Facebook app. And we really learned that, hey, look, making sure that all these interactions load right, feel right, work well, is a really important part of the kind of holistic experience. And then I look at trust and safety, right? Like integrity, how are we doing on kind of prevalence and, you know, mitigating kind of, uh, you know, the harms and adhering to community standards. And, you know, the trust piece is increasingly also about privacy. How well are we doing in terms of our privacy commitments uh, and different things like that? So I look at kind of that bucket of things. And though there's goals that kind of ladder up to all of those at different levels of the organization. And then, of course, we look at things like sentiment and like, you know, how much do people prefer Facebook for this over this other service? And so, uh, you know, that gives me like kind of a complete picture of how are we doing? So, you know, I want to make sure that Facebook is growing, that people feel like, hey, this is a valuable thing to me, even as kind of we have new generations using social media. I want to make sure that Facebook contributes to Meta's overall business. <laughs> I want to make sure that Facebook feels fast and easy to use and enjoyable. And I want to make sure that Facebook is safe and that we do a good job of protecting your data. And that kind of boils down to uh, how I think about the goals. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, my co-host Shireen Ghaffari asks Tom about the history of the newsfeed and previous attempts at algorithmically driven recommendations. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com slash decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable. But there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Here's Shireen Ghaffari. I remember there was, you know, when I was first starting in journalism, there was the pivot to video kind of era, right? When everyone wanted to be a video journalist, including me, um, because of Facebook. And, you know, then there's MSI stuff we talked about, and now you're leaning toward discovery. But you've been at Facebook since 2010. Can you kind of help us define some of these different eras that you've seen for Newsfeed? Um, Can you just briefly kind of give us an overview of, of how you would markate the different eras? Sure. I joined the company in 2010. Um, I joined as an engineer uh, and I start, I worked on our growth team for the first two years there. So I think, you know, I, I was there, I think, I think our milestone was like 500 million users or something that we hit in, in my first year. But that era that I really remember was that transition from web to mobile. <laughs> you know, it was just like, and and this was like around the time of our IPO. And I remember tons of headlines. Facebook isn't going to succeed on mobile. Facebook doesn't have a business. Facebook is a web company. It's dead. And so I, I say this because I'm kind of used to living through the skepticism as Facebook has made kind of these big leaps. And I've always kind of seen this get to the other side. So the shift from web to mobile was a big one. And that was actually big in terms of like the technology lift and the engineering lift to do that was actually huge. And then, of course, figuring out how to design and have a good mobile product when you were used to designing for the web was big. So I don't know that like our core feed changed that much, but it was this gigantic shift that we had to make as a company under a lot of pressure during the IPO and everything that was really kind of memorable to yeah. me. And alongside of that was figuring out how to make money on mobile, right? Because like I said, we were so used to like making money through the web right-hand column ad. So... In hindsight, we all kind of like laugh about it, but it was this huge mental breakthrough to be like, oh, we're going to show ads in feed. It was like, we can't possibly do that, right? And like, so watching the organization go through that was was really interesting. I think the next phase of things, one of the things that I'm I'm proud of Facebook for is that we've been able to integrate different formats. I think you see TikTok and you see YouTube trying to do this, but Facebook was able to integrate video. It was able to integrate other entity types too, like groups where you could form a community. And so I think that over the next kind of several years, you saw feed just kind of grow and being able to integrate these new format types and these new content types. And it was just exciting to see how much you could really use feed to kind of keep track of within your friends, within your communities, following pages. And so 
that was kind of like this proliferation of us really understanding the power of what feed could do. And then I think, uh, you know, probably there's a phase after that where you started to see things shift. You saw the shift to stories. And again, this was similar to, I remember the shift to mobile. And, you know, when we were like, okay, cool, let's get on stories, let's get it out there. And people didn't use it for a while. It was sitting at the top of feed. Everyone was like, Facebook stories is a ghost town. It's going to fail. And then, you know, like a year and a half later, like people were just like, oh, cool. This is the way I want to share now. And it kind of, kind of took off. And so those were a couple of the big transformations that I saw. And I think the next one, again, is really like, it's this story of like format innovation and kind of wiring in new ways for people to express themselves. So obviously the format stuff that's happening now is around video and short form video. The people that are kind of getting wired into the experience, you know, it was groups a few years ago, which has gone really well. Now it's creators that are getting kind of more wired into this experience. And so I, I see us our, our next piece as an expansion. And, and then the technology piece that I think is new and exciting, similar to web to mobile is the power of AI. And like, it's just so amazing the innovation that's happening in the AI space and, and what some of these uh, new kind of AI architectures and, and models are, are really capable of doing. And so, uh, you know, I see kind of this like, great, like who's going to be able to leverage the power of AI recommendations and marry them with the power of social, traditional kind of connected social networks. And you see TikTok trying to do that. A lot of folks say to me, oh, Tom, are you chasing TikTok? And, you know, you see that in the press, but I kind of say, hey, look, from where I sit, I see TikTok chasing Facebook, you know? I said I, I started my career on the growth team, and I see TikTok asking me to find my friends. I was scrolling through TikTok, and there was a unit that said, people you may know. I managed the people you may know team at Facebook <laughs> as my first management job. We literally created a system called people you may know. And then I'm literally seeing people you may know on TikTok. And I'm like, I know what's going on here. This is what I worked on when I was working on growing the Facebook social network, right? And so I think all of these companies are starting to try to figure out what is going to be the right blend of the kind of AI algorithmic recommendations and the social interactions and recommendations. And this is why I feel like Facebook's actually well positioned to succeed here. We've integrated formats in the past. We've kind of brought on new entity types, groups, creators, pages in the past. Like we're pretty good at AI. So we're pretty good at social. And I think, you know, how well we bring all these things together over the next year or two is going to determine how successful we are and how much people want to continue using Facebook. But I'm, I'm pretty optimistic right now. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I could go so deep, and I've noticed that with TikTok too. And does TikTok need to become more of a kind of Facebook app and integrate your real life friends in order to be successful? But I will it seems couch like that. It's trying. It seems like it's, it's trying. <laughs> it's definitely trying. But I will, I will catch that because there's important questions I want to get to just around sort of the societal impact of newsfeed, and these are all probably you know, topics and discussions you've heard before. But the first, just to jump back to meaningful social interactions, what is your response to the criticism, especially from Francis Haugen, that this MSI metric gave preference to extreme and polarizing content and that the integrity team seemed to have found some evidence of this? Is there a context missing here? Or, or how would you, you know, how would you respond to that criticism? I think like any kind of system of incentives, you have folks that find a way to abuse it. It was funny because like one of the integrity problems that we were looking at before MSI 
was things like uh, what we would call watch bait or click bait, right? Like when you kind of optimize a system for time spent, you get a different type of a problem. You get people kind of trying to trick you into watching something that's not that valuable or clicking on something that's not that valuable. So MSI really, again, came from the spirit of people want on Facebook to feel like they can interact with one another. Comments were a very good proxy for that. But yeah, I mean, what we ended up seeing too was some people left gnarly comments. Some people abuse that system. And when we talk about integrity, we actually know that it's an adversarial problem, which means you ne it's never solved. It just unfortunately like changes. And so what happened when we introduced MSI with, you know, I think a lot of good research about what people wanted is you saw some of the adversarial behavior come in. You saw some people gaming the system. And the reason we invest so much in integrity and you know even i mean you know we've shared how much we've invested in it from a you know human kind of headcount perspective and from a budget perspective but we know that it's this adversarial problem so a lot of the research that kind of was ended up being leaked out there was created by our integrity team some of it created by people on my team who said hey look this is how this is being abused this is now what we need to do to fix this and that's why msi and our implementation of it has changed over and over and over again, as we understood, A, how are people's feelings about what connects them socially? How are those changing? And then B, how are these bad actors kind of abusing our system? And so, you know, I'm proud of the work that the integrity teams do. I'm proud of the research. And, um, you know, I, I spend a bunch of time with our integrity teams. They are deeply embedded in our product development process now. And I think that we've gotten, you know, quite good at this. Um, but yeah, as we went through that period, we saw a lot of different ways that I think people were distorting or kind of abusing what I think were the really, frankly, good use cases for MSI for things that were not great. Is it possible to foresee that abuse ahead of time? I mean, you're dealing with so many different inputs and outputs and metrics, and you're looking at such a high level mm -hmm. at a thing that has 3 billion users on it. Can you foresee this? Because, I mean, I think the critics would say you either didn't want to or Haugen would say you put profit above safety and that it mattered more that it was keeping people on the site. That's a very common criticism, I think, that gets leveled against the feed. And so can you just respond to that? Yeah, so I have a little bit of trouble with the like, hey, could you not foresee this? Because we were investing so much and we had these teams that were working and researching the problem. That was why a lot of that research was being produced. It was being produced as this evolved. And like I said, in terms of foreseeing it, I actually looked at what were some of the top integrity issues before MSI, and they were just very different. And so as we kind of change things, we kind of know that like, okay, some things are going to happen here, some things we're going to be able to predict, some things we're not going to be able to predict. But that's why, again, we have this very active integrity team looking at how this unfolds on a very regular basis. And I think we've hired some of the best um, in the business to really be able to analyze and think through. I also think one thing I will say on this, though, is that I do think we went through that period a little bit before that period as we were building these teams where we were not always thinking about this very adversarial nature of things. And I think actually building out the integrity muscle created a set of people in a culture that were able to say, you know, actually, this is the way a bad actor is going to go in and abuse this system. This is the way that this thing is going to get 
compromised. When we were going through that period, we were still really building out in, in integrity. Um, but again, I think the fact that we were spending so much to build up those teams, I mean, one of the things I talked through is the history of different kind of phases of Facebook. I remember the history of the kind of expansion of different teams because as when I was leading engineering, I remember having to figure out hiring and stuff. In that period, we were expanding those integrity teams so rapidly because we knew, hey, we've got to really build this muscle and invest here. And then I think the the second maybe biggest criticism we've seen about newsfeeds history or feeds history is around uh, the problem of maybe low quality content, I would call it. There's these top most widely viewed posts. And in a recent quarter, you know, for example, there was a suspected scam that, that got took down after it got millions of views and it was the top of the report. So how do you get the quality of content higher on Facebook, especially when now recommendations from people who may not be your friends are going to play an even greater role in what people see? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we're looking at here. One is what I kind of mentioned before, which is incorporating more signals that reflect literally people telling us kind of what they want or not. So see more, see less, right? Like, one of the things that we've kind of seen, we've been looking at this issue of um, like watch bait recently, right? So watch bait is where somebody's trying to get you to watch a video to its completion because again, if you produce a video of a certain length, then you can kind of monetize it. So there's all these incentives to get you to watch the video, but sometimes the video just, it's like terrible. You like watch till the end, you're like, this video, it sucked, right? Like it's a really bad experience. And so one of the things that we kind of are looking at is like, okay, what are the types of things that help us understand that this wasn't bad video? Were there angry reactions on this video? When we ask people, do they want to see more or see less of it? Do they say that they want to see less of it, right? And so you kind of have to say, hey, whatever the signal you got from the fact that a lot of people watched a lot of this video, you need to discount that because there's these other kind of more qualitative signals that say people did not actually like this experience of watching this video. So we're doing a lot of work around things of that nature. The other thing that we're doing too um, is, and we talked about this with video in the past. I, I speak about these things just because reels and video are kind of, you know, big top of mind for the recommendation systems right now. But we are looking at kind of different aspects of originality. So okay, hey, was this content that was produced, was the person that kind of created it, like, or posted it the person that created it? Or was it kind of like, there might be types of content where what we would call it's like limited originality, like somebody reacts to a reel, so they're showing, you know, somebody else's content, but they're adding commentary or like something interested on top of it. And then there's other things that are just like low originality, like somebody took somebody else's video and just posted it through their account. And what we're really trying to do is look at, all right, how do we reward more of the folks that are creating original content or maybe the limited original content, they're adding something new to the conversation versus folks that are maybe just kind of recycling something or reposting something. And kind of doing this at scale, you know, is something that we're working through how to do for reels and some of our other content types. But that's a piece that I'm pretty excited about the team talks about a lot. We do want Facebook to be attractive to creators and we do want creators who put effort into creating original content to feel like they're getting rewarded both through distribution as well as through a bunch of the kind of monetization work that we're doing. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. In the long term, the quality of the content has to go up if you want people to stay there. Another kind of question about the past of news as feed and newsfeed is 
you know, there was a time when it feels like all you would see on Facebook or a lot of what you would see was political content, right? Mm -hmm. And people were debating, news of the day. But then, you know, we see Facebook kind of shift away from that. And especially, I would say, with the direction now. And there was a point even in the last U.S. presidential election where Facebook shut off political group recommendations. Now that you're recommending more to people, how do you allow for recommendations that don't exasperate the worst in people? It seems like a tough problem. And is is the answer, is the direction you're going just to, to kind of shut off political recommendations more across the board? Or how do you kind of balance that mix of should we recommend things that could be politically controversial or politically polarizing? It's a great question. So yeah, just to clarify too, we still are not recommending political content in groups. That wasn't a temporary thing. That was a permanent thing that we decided to do. Um, but in terms of recommendations overall, Again, the first thing that we really look for is like, what are the types of things that people want? And I'll tell you right now, like, I'm not getting a lot of research that says that young adults want more political content on Facebook. I'm not seeing a ton of research that says anybody wants a lot more political content on Facebook. And frankly, that's why we've been kind of looking at kind of reexamining, like, where are we kind of showing political content? And you're seeing it really not show up in a lot of our recommendations channels. It's actually because just that's not what people really want to see. And I actually think we kind of learned this in the pandemic too. Like people are really fatigued by a lot of the political discussions and things like that. And I think especially with the pandemic, everything's just so heavy. I actually think one of the reasons why kind of short form video took off is like it's entertaining, it's fun, it's uplifting. It, it's just a different vibe than what people were seeing with, uh, you know, doom scrolling or, or whatever it was. So. A lot of what we think about in terms of what content do we want to reward is just like, what content do people want to see on Facebook right now? Now, in terms of like the, um, how do we, you know, prevent, you know, potentially bad content from coming into recommendations? We have two sets of, I would say, guidelines. One is our community standards. This is like, this content is not allowed on Facebook, right? So if something violates our community standards, doesn't matter if you're connected to it or not. It's out of, you know, we don't put it into your feed. We don't put it into recommendations. It's like, this is just violating our rules. We have another set of guidelines. It's our recommendations guidelines. They are a distinct set of kind of policies and guidelines that govern what we show in recommendations. And that is an even higher bar than our community standards because this is content that, you know, Facebook and Meta is recommending. And so, we are going to be keeping a very high bar in terms of those recommendations guidelines. And I actually hope that all of the other companies that are doing recommendations publish their guidelines, you know, publish the type of transparency reports um, that we do, because I do think that as more and more kind of, of these social services get into recommendations, it's really going to be important to have this kind of collective understanding of how are these companies making this decision? How are they enforcing on these things? And I think that we have this kind of infrastructure with our policies, with our enforcement, with the reports that we put out to continue sharing how we're doing. And you even mentioned things like the WVCR, right? We're going to continue to publish that. And we just put that out there. And yeah, some of the things on there, I'm like, oh gosh, okay, I wish... You know, like that's that's something where we need to figure out how do we do better on that. And, um, you know, I think that it's really important, though, that we're always we're always putting out the work on how we're approaching this. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, those widely viewed content reports are 
as well as, you know, tools like CrowdTangle um, in the past have been helpful for people to better understand Facebook. But still, I have to say one of the biggest concerns I hear from the experts who are researchers studying social media or other journalists is just that it's hard to even get a grasp on what's going on with Facebook. What are people really seeing on Facebook? Because everyone's experience is different because, you know, there's been debate even inside Facebook about whether CrowdTangle, for example, is presenting a, a holistic view of what's really being seen. What do you say to those who think Facebook's feeds are like a black box and how are we supposed to make sense of it all? How transparent do you want to be about this going forward? How transparent can can Facebook really be on this? There's a couple of things here. I think what we need to evaluate Facebook as well as all these other companies on is how well do they do at kind of continuous enforcement of their community standards. So what does that mean? First, you need to publish your community standards and say what's allowed and what's not, and then have a process to modify it. So we've been obviously trying things like the oversight board to have an external body give us feedback on how well are our community standards. So I think you need to have kind of a very clear, what are the rules here? Then you need to have accountability of like, how are you enforcing the rules? So we have our transparency report. We talk about how much content we're taking down. It's being externally audited in terms of its methodology, in terms of its results. So again, we're not, we're trying to have a lot of other eyes take a look at this. The reason I say, again, it needs to widen from just Facebook is like, let's say, let's say Facebook didn't exist tomorrow. Well, you're still going to have a video go live on Twitch that's then pulled down and put onto YouTube, that's then turned into short form video clips on TikTok that are then reposted on Twitter. So that whole ecosystem is shaped by a bunch of different companies. Facebook is one and we're an important one. And so we recognize that we have a big responsibility. But if you're just looking at Facebook or you're just looking at like specifically how does Facebook do this particular thing in their algorithm, it's missing the bigger picture, which is like, how is each company approaching this problem? How is each company enforcing on this problem? And who's auditing and providing some sense of whether or not this is even a legitimate way of attacking the problem? That's the conversation that I think we need to be having. And I think Facebook's been doing a good job in meta more broadly kind of leading there. Yeah, I guess it's a question of who should be doing that. I know, you know, Facebook and Meta has said that they welcome regulation in some of these areas. And do you think that needs to kind of go to an outside body? I think it could. I think the oversight board is an interesting kind of example of us trying something like this. I think the other thing that we often do, we have a lot of our policy folks that work with kind of groups from other tech companies on, okay, how do we evolve things like our approach to uh, transparency, how do we evolve the ability to, so I think there's, I think there's a bunch of work just in terms of the industry getting together and kind of figuring out how do we collectively do this. And then of course, I think there's kind of a legislative angle again, which Facebook has historically, you know, shared that, Hey, we are supportive of regulation in this space, but I think it needs to be well thought out regulation. And we've been very open to having that, that dialogue. So I don't think it's like one thing that you can do. I think it's a collective um, set of things. And I think what you've seen Meta do is start to really model some of the ingredients of the broader solution that we think could be viable. We have to take one more break, but when we come back, I asked Tom about responsibility. Stick around. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. 
In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code FOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're back. Covering you guys for a while now, it feels like a lot of the criticism that you get comes from the opacity around ranking and feed and when people feel like you guys have your thumb on the scale in a way that is harmful to a particular group. And I remember when I came to MPK uh, in like 2016, you did a whiteboard draw out of like how ranking works. And it was like, people don't get that it's personalized for each person. But I guess there's this tension still of, when you have responsibility as the company for what happens when humans have responsibility, like when is it the human's fault and when is it the machine or Facebook's fault? And when you're going to this future of recommendations, you have to expect that there's going to be even more scrutiny and potentially also it looks like it's going in the direction of legal liability for what Facebook recommends, at least in certain markets. And so, I mean, can you, do you, how have you, how do you reckon with that? that push that you guys are doing that you feel like you have to do on the product because it's what users want, but also the responsibility that is going to bring and the scrutiny that's going to bring on you. That's already been kind of bubbling when it has just been based on mostly the connected graph. And now you're going to be just like really going into recommendations. Does that scare you at all? Does that like, I mean, it's a big uh, tension, I think that you guys are going to have to reckon with. It doesn't scare me, but I recognize the responsibility that we have. And that is, that is weighty, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, the reason I'm okay with it with recommendations is because of how much we've built up in this space. You know, we've talked about spending $40 billion over several years, just how many people we have working on this. If there's any company that I think has really risen to the challenge of trying to do this at scale, I do think it's meta. And so I do think we're well positioned to do this for recommendations. It's something that my team, you know, as I look at the product features for the discovery engine, our integrity teams are in there, our roadmaps are aligned. It's something that we're looking at very much upfront, but I also think it's important to have that broader conversation. Like I said, we're not the only people in the recommendation space at all. If Facebook disappears tomorrow, if Meta disappears tomorrow, AI is not going away, recommendations aren't going away, large scale kind of networks aren't going away. So. My main thing is just like, okay, how do we have a dialogue where Facebook and Meta are have a seat at the table and are in a leadership position, 
but that we are really looking more broadly on what does the industry kind of need to do here. And I think like getting kind of the legislation and the regulation right is going to be really important, right? Like if it's overly punitive, if it's like, hey, if you, if any bad recommendation comes through, we're going to fine you some exorbitant amount of money. Well, you know what? In any kind of process, people make mistakes, you know, people make mistakes when they manufacture a car on an assembly line or whatever. Again, that's why you have these kind of continuous, you know, quality and enforcement things that we have, like integrity and like the transparency report, because we're constantly trying to get better and hold ourselves accountable to that. So I think you have to be really careful about how it's crafted, because the downside of kind of a, a, a very strict regulation that's like, make no mistakes ever is going to be well, then, yeah, maybe companies aren't going to provide this. And then maybe that's actually a big disservice to the world. And then maybe companies in other countries or other jurisdictions are going to grow. And, you know, this is going to be available to other folks. So these are all of the types of conversations we're having of just like, hey, we have to really look at kind of the consequences intended and unintended of recommendations. We also have to look at the consequences unintended and intended of regulation and strike really the right the right balance here. And do you feel a sense of the responsibility globally that I think the criticism Haugen and others have leveled that like Facebook ignored safety in countries outside of North America and Europe traditionally? And do you feel like you have a more global grasp of what what the implications of this are now? Facebook and Meta serves a global community. And I think that we look at our programs to make sure that no matter who's using the product and from where that we you know, apply those safety measures and those integrity measures. In different regions, it requires different expertise. It requires some different things to do. But I think you can look at, you know, I mean, we released a human rights report, I think, in the last week or so. And I don't know any other tech company that's releasing a human rights report. But I think, like, what you're seeing is us investing here and us making progress here and us trying to tell the world uh, about what we're doing about it. And I view things like that as, no, we really do think about this globally. And I just think a lot of the advancements that we're making in AI are going to help us there. We talked about some work that our FAIR team had done, which which can basically take AI and it's one of the most sophisticated AI translation systems that's ever been created. Well, guess what? That AI is being used to help us with integrity issues in different languages and across the world where we can like take kind of an AI that might have been trained in one set of languages and actually apply it to another set of languages because of all the investments that we've made in AI. And I think we're doing quite a lot, uh, both through the technology that we're creating and the policies and the kind of external uh, relationships that we're building to be able to tackle this on a global scale. And I do hope that that is coming through. And I think that that is definitely uh, where we're kind of thinking internally. I know Discovery Engine was a big announcement. Is there anything we should expect to see going forward? I'll say kind of one last thing on this. It's a really exciting time for Facebook. And the way that I kind of think about where we are is we definitely have one foot in our kind of legacy and history, which is, I think, what you see in the feeds launch that we did today. But we also have a big foot in kind of the future of what the next generation is looking for from social media. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fun time managing that transition. But like we talked about earlier, Facebook's done this multiple times, right? Like we've been through this big evolution. And so this is another big one, but I'm, I think, uh, you know, on the other side of it, I think we're going to say, oh, wow, like, of course, 
we went in you know this direction this is really what people wanted out of social media so um anyway i'm just i'm pretty optimistic about where we're headed yeah it's a it's a brave new world yeah i really enjoyed the conversation so thank you for having me thanks tom thank you so much Thanks again to Tom Allison, and thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you all listened to Land of the Giants. Alex Shereen and the team did an amazing job this season. You can binge the whole thing now, and the season finale is tomorrow. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Also, as many of you have discovered, you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.